everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I'm your host, April Hanna. We have a great show today. We're going to be speaking about holotropic breath work and how that relates to consciousness. Our guest today is Tab Sparks. He is the director of Groff Transpersonal Training, also known as GTT, the only training program that certifies people as practitioners of holotropic breath work. Tab is a teacher, consultant, and writer with over 30 years of experience working therapeutically with people in non-ordinary states of consciousness. And we are going to be speaking about Tab's latest book, The Power Within, Becoming, Being, and the Holotropic Paradigm. So welcome, Tav. Oh, thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, it's an honor to be yeah. here. Yeah, this is a new topic. This isn't a topic that we've actually ever discussed on the Path 11 podcast. And I know that a lot of our listeners are explorers of consciousness. So I'm really excited to, um, you know, as we get into our interview, talk more about how breath work really helps people to access consciousness and to go into deeper states of consciousness. So I was thinking maybe we could begin with the history of holotropic breath work and who founded it and how you came to find it as well. Okay. Yeah, great. Well, um, you know, the person who is most responsible or the couple actually would be Stanislav Grof. He's a Czech-born psychiatrist uh, who uh, doing his clinical work in the 50s there in Czechoslovakia and his wife Christina, which came later, but um, Stan was one of those where this is shortly after Albert Hoffman had discovered LSD, and uh, he sent vials of of the substance to various clinics in the world. And Stan's clinic happened to get one of these uh, uh, boxes of the vials of LSD, and so Stan, being an adventuresome sort, went ahead and took a hit. And, um, and at this point, he was really, really disillusioned with traditional psychiatry, you know, the whole idea that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain, that it is produced there. And they were, you know, uh, doing all kinds of uh, things like frontal lobotomy and electroshock therapy and things of this nature. And it was just very cruel and he was very unhappy with it. And so he volunteered for the LSD and uh, he went straight out all the way in consciousness to some of those places that are described in mystical traditions. Uh, Tathagata, beyond the beyond, you know, he went through the clear light, through the tunnel, experienced death and rebirth. And and everything fell into place for him. And it was like, this is, you know, there was no language for this in traditional psychiatry. So it came flying back into the earth, back into uh, the clinic there and recognized that psychiatry was really heading in the wrong direction. Uh, and, it will, and that consciousness itself was a mystical phenomenon that had nothing to do with it as being an epiphenomenon of the brain, that the brain uses as a reducing valve and so on. So this became his life work and he started researching it. And then, you know, he worked with his clients there and was having amazing results. And at some point, uh, he connected up with some of the other places in the world where there was some of this uh, research going on. And very fortunately, he got out of the Czech Republic. This was during the communist uh, sort of regime there. And he came to the U.S. to the Baltimore uh, a research facility there and met with other researchers where they began to uh, do this work in earnest. And he worked with maybe 4,000 people uh, and was having su tremendous success. And so he I think his first major book was Realms of the Human Unconscious. And so basically, uh, previously, to, previously to this point, people had thought that consciousness was just, uh, you know, as I said, it's, it's just something that comes from the brain. Uh, 
and it's just about our kind of everyday waking state and so on. Um, and so, and that consciousness sort of began at birth and then sort of developed all through that, through the Freudian zones and so on. And that this was all the sort of the research that was going on at the time. And, and basically he then expanded the map of consciousness. And so it became uh, the biographical domain, which is the moment of birth up to the present that we all have. And that he noticed and also had the experiences himself where people were reliving their birth experience and how important that was uh, to what happens in this everyday life. And then not only that, there was another dimension that he called the transpersonal, uh, which is basically uh, commensurate with all that is. You see, this, this would include all the findings of the mystical traditions and so on. And all of this will become available through, psych, through uh, systematic psychedelic work. So he was doing great there. And then the big thing happened where, uh, you know, some, there were some things that happened. The government shut down the project. And this was really, really sad. The good news is all the research is beginning again now. And um, the, so this is really exciting. But Stan left there and he'd heard about a place on the West Coast in California, of course, <laughs> called Esalen Institute. And it was like a, 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 a budding think tank, think tank, tank and people from all over the world, scientists and spiritual healers and teachers of all sorts, shamans would gather there and they were sharing information. And he was so excited. And this is where he met Christina, who was in what we now call a spiritual emergency. Uh, which is a psycho-spiritual opening that's just really tough to handle, you see. And then people go to a psychiatrist, a traditional psychiatrist, and they get like a, uh, uh, a, a, a diagnosis of schizophrenia and so on, uh, which is really not so healthy for people because then they're put on medication for such a long period of time. But he met Christina. They fell in love. Um, and then uh, he despaired of not being able to use the LSD there. And so he remembered what happened in one of the, uh, one of the sessions where a client who was in an LSD session began to do some deep breathing, uh, uh, who was working with a pain in his shoulder. And at the end of the session, he said that the deep breathing had helped him a whole lot and helped him go deeper into the expanded state of awareness, the non-ordinary state. And so uh, Stan thought, well, let's just see if breath can do then what uh, the psychedelics can do. You see that people can do a, a systematic deep breathing, you know, just a little deeper and a little faster than you ordinarily breathe, and we'll see what happens. And so they did that, and people would have experiences just as powerful as they did with the psychedelics, real transformative experiences. It was really beautiful uh, what was happening there. And so from there, they developed then this model called hol holotropic breathwork. That name didn't come till a good bit later after he'd written several books. Um, yeah. So that was the birth of it, and uh, he, you know, basically was discovering that we could access the deeper dimensions of the psyche. Those are described by mystics, shamans of all time. All of that was available just through doing some deep breathing. Now, here's the key to separate holotropic breathwork from other forms of breathing. The, what we discovered was, and I, along with him when I finally met him, was that, that uh the most important therapeutic tool at this point was not to direct the client in any way whatsoever or to think that we could possibly know what is going on in the consciousness of an individual. It's just no way of knowing that, that what each person has is a, is a, is a, what we have come to call, it's a very diminutive name, the inner healer, but which is really a, an inner consciousness that truth lies within. And that, and that the most empowering thing is to discover this 
within ourselves, you see, and not to be directed by a psychiatrist or any other kind of teacher from the outside as if we know what's best for another human being. It's hubris. It's ridiculous. And so that was the corner therapeutic stone of the holotropic breathwork. The work spread, and so that was the beginning. Great. Yes, and what you just said at the very end there in your book on page um, 201, I actually marked it because you said it just like you said it here so eloquently. And I, I'd like to just um, quote it because I think that it, this is so important when people are just trying to do the work of healing and healing themselves or if they are going through difficult times and trying to seek a psychiatrist or a therapist. And sometimes I think people in our culture can be a little too reliant on going to someone and saying, tell me what's wrong with me. And um, this, this part of your book was just great. He had written, from the recognition of our own unknowing, it seems sensible that we should be providing them, meaning the people that are coming for your training, with a method that would, in the truest sense, afford them the opportunity to undertake this journey for themselves and come to the relevant truths and conclusions about themselves by themselves. And to me, that's just so empowering. And I, I love the title of your book for that specific reason is I think, you know, when people are doing this type of breath work, that they're really seeing that they have the power within to heal themselves. Oh, yeah, thanks. That's so cool. Cool. And, and it's not that therapists are not important. People helpers. Basically, what I always say is, what do we have to offer another human being? And that is our, what, I, what I learned from my Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm a recovering addict, is the only thing we can share with another person is our own experience, strength, and hope. You see, and we can provide tremendous support for somebody, uh, a loving, open space for them to do their work and to keep them safe while they do it without trying to control their heads, their consciousness in any way. And that's the key. So we are important. Therapists are hugely important. It's just not necessarily in the way that every school teaches. Yes, I would agree. And outside of uh, Path 11 Productions, that's what I do. I'm a mental health therapist. So, oh, yeah, yeah this yeah, this work is uh, very interesting to me. So with um, just curious, because you had mentioned that you yourself are a recovering alcoholic and kind of going through your own, um, you know, therapy, what was your experience in doing the holotrophic breath work for yourself? Okay, so let me just a little backstory quickly. Sure. Before I, 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 you know, I took a, I was a uh, hippie in the 60s revolution. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and so basically I took a whole lot of LSD and a whole lot of all kinds of substances. And for about a 10 year period there from, uh, you know, my from 20 up until 30, uh, 18, 19, 20, you know, like I did what Tim Leary said, turn on, tune in and drop out of college. I was in a good college, took LSD and dropped out. But so I basically became addicted to just about every substance that I took. And so, uh, but there were about, out of about 50 or 60 or 100, I don't know how many LSD psychedelic sessions when well, they weren't sessions they were just journeys that I took about seven of them absolutely changed my life you know they they were absolutely the most mystical things that ever happened to me in my whole life uh, and it changed everything for me and upgraded my life in such a way that I knew that this was what my life was all about but at the same time I had this incredible addiction so it was horrible I mean I nearly died a number of times and I finally got clean when I was 30 uh, and, uh, you know, went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and the, what I loved about it was it's a spiritual path. The 12 steps is a beautiful spiritual path. Um, I loved it. I loved the, the, the love that I found there. Uh, Narcotics Anonymous was just getting known. I was working with the people who were writing the book for Narcotics Anonymous. 
And all of that was great. And then I, a psychiatrist found me. He was opening up a clinic, a treatment center, liked who I was and said, you want to come work for me? So I did. So I, I went to work and he sent me off to schools and stuff to learn how to do the therapeutic thing. But really, he hired me because of this thing about what we call presence. You know, it wasn't, he knew of any college degree, but he also felt that there was something that the addicts could relate to, which, which they could, you know, somebody else that had been there and I just didn't try to cop their heads in any kind of way. So this was in the early 80s, and, uh, but I was despairing of all kinds of traditional models to work. And then I, I had been to a conference, met a beautiful woman named Jacqueline Small, who, um, who was doing really a spiritual, spiritually oriented uh, kind of therapy then for addicts. And she had a workshop out in Texas. I was in Georgia. And so I used it as one of my, uh, you know, you know, you take a, a, a whatever, do you go to something and it's like an upgrade in your schooling for the, for the work that you're doing. And I went out there and it was breath work. And she had met Stan and Christina Groff. And I had no idea I was going to be doing this breath work. And so I did it. And the very first experience, this was in 1984 on my birthday, I it was, a, it was a total mystical experience, a union with the divine, and it absolutely changed everything. And I knew in my heart, not just in my head, that this is what was missing then from traditional therapy of all kinds, and especially in addictions treatment. So my first goal then was to embrace the breath work fully. And then in 1986, I met Stan in a very beautiful place in a big, the first big workshops we do, about 100 people, 200 people. Everybody's got sitters, somebody protecting their space. We play music. The session lasts two or three hours, whatever. And um, I actually met him and worked with him. He'd given Jackie permission, Jackie Small permission to do his work. And he and Christina, you know, I actually got to work with him from that moment. We became close and close friends. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, I, I you know, you know, I just studied the breath work. I did a whole lot. I, a, I basically, I just worked on myself. <laughs> you know, and, um, and then eventually, uh, I met my wife, Carrie in, in the, this was before there was an actual training. And in 1990, the training began and standing, you know, went stand out, put, I went to work with him there for the training and, uh, we were based in California and then people wanted it around the world. And so myself, Diane Haug, a whole bunch of really beautiful people, we would travel to these countries and bring the breath work there, the training. And so that's how it spread. Wonderful. Maybe you can bring our listeners into what the holotropic breathwork actually is if they were to come to a training or what to expect and what sessions look like. Right. Okay. Thank you. So basically, it's a three-part process. We call it preparation, session, integration. And you have to have all three. You have to prepare people for what to expect. So we give them an extended cartography of the psyche, you know, which is these are the types of experiences that many people have reported, biographical things. Many people relive the birth. So this is called the perinatal dimension, very, very powerful dimension where this, where we discover in our own deep work, we have stored tremendous uh, powerful influences that will be like a, be like coloring the lens through which we look when we are born and come into the world. You see, things that need to be cleansed in some sort of way. And then the transpersonal dimension, as it's described. So we explain all of this, and everybody has what we call a sitter. And they, so there's two sessions a day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. They last about two and a half hours. And then a person sits for you, 
and you do the breathing. And then we play this uh, a set of music and we don't try to screw with people, people's heads and do any scary music. But the music begins with lots of nice drums to get people excited about the breathing. And then we have what we call the um, the, the middle section has to do with the emotional things that human beings go through. It's more dynamic of emotion. And then the last third is uh, sacred music to help people come back in the room. And so we have facilitators, uh, what we call moving floaters, moving around the room. And each person has a sitter. And we and their job is just to keep people. Our job is to keep people safe, keep them from bumping their heads, um, hold the space for them. And if they have a pain that comes up somewhere in their body, the neck, the shoulders, the arms, whatever, we work with them. And uh, if they want it, and they have a magic saying, "Stop." If they say "Stop," we don't. We don't. We stop. You know. And uh, we're not directing them when we do this. We're doing what they ask for. And then at the end of the session, when they set up and they feel that they're finished, we check with them. Um, if there's any leftover things in the body, we, we support them to heal. And the way you heal in this work is by intensification of the symptom. If you have a headache, the idea is not to stop the headache. The headache is showing us something and let them breathe with the headache. And what will happen is the inner healing power will bring to, into consciousness, which is the healer, our own particular awareness, will we'll show them, ah, oh, that's about the time that I fell off the bicycle when I was three years old, whatever. So they relive it and then the pain is gone. You see, OK, then there's this, the uh, the sharing session. This is the integration phase. Very huge because people are still vulnerable. They come out of the session there. And uh, so we just hold a space and then they share their journey and we do not therapize at all. It's mainly support, support, support. We uplift them, you know, and um, we, we sort of do a Jungian thing, which is what they call amplification. If some, somebody says, oh, you know, I had this experience, you know, I felt like I was riding my horse. And then all of a sudden I was riding the horse of the, of the divine spirit. And, and, and we sort of, Demonstrate, we say, you know, well, in some spiritual traditions, whatever we do in the earth plane is mirrored in the heavens. You see, you don't say, ah, yes, you had the experience with Shiva or whatever. We just offer a suggestion of what we see in the literature and what our own experiences are. And uh, and then people we during that right before that, they, they do a drawing. We call it a mandala. They draw their They draw their experience as best they can or work in clay or or whatever. Yeah, so that all this helps do the integration, give them our phone numbers. And so we have to stay in contact with him in case something comes up later. And that's a session. Um, and that's what that that. OK, but for the training, you're there for six days in, in a, what we call a module. You will have a theme for it. It could be um, modern psychotherapy, uh, a concept we've developed called spiritual emergency. Uh, it's a, a spirit. It's a spiritual crisis, which is often mis misconstrued to be psychosis by the traditional um, uh, psychiatric school schools. So um, we'll, we'll teach a theme. Uh, people have lectures in the morning, then they do the breath work in the afternoon and the training. They have to attend a number of modules. They learn how to do the body work that we do. The training lasts a minimum of two years. And then there's a big certification process. They all get to work the floor with everybody and we give them loving feedback. And that's the training. So you have the groups, sessions all over the world, and then we certify people to do the work. It's trademarked, and uh, we certify people to do the work, and thus it spreads. Um, uh, not as fast as many methods, but slowly we, we want to make sure that everybody's doing it right, you know. 
um, because we don't want to mess with anybody's heads and, you know, try to control them and so on. Right. So is, is one of the main purposes for people, I heard you say in there, where you may, you fell off your bike, you see that trauma, you relive that trauma, and by reliving that trauma, the emotions or whatever is attached to that dissipates. Is this more for trauma work or people that have intense trauma in their life, or um, can it be for a variety of different Oh, yeah. Reasons? That's a, sure, right. Thanks. That's a great question. And then, you know, people... Very few people don't have something, uh, you know, that they, they look back on, whether it's an emotional thing that's happened. But, you know, most people can point to something that was painful in their lives. Um, but that's not, you know, that that is certainly not the only reason to be there. Uh, we have people come who are just natural born happy. It's a, to me, it's a great karmic blessing to have a lifetime where people feel free. And there are so many of these and they come to celebrate themselves, you see, and it's not like uh, you when you lie down and you you have to be searching for pain. The inner healer, we call it the inner healer, this very diminutive name. It's like in any one given session, a breather will receive exactly what she needs from at that particular point. You see, so it may be just she may have she may be sitting on uh, in her own life. Uh, some kind of powerful abuse, but it's not time for her to go there yet because it's just it's not safe or it's not safe for him to go there. So for the first 10 sessions, it's full of light. It's full of love where she begins to trust more deeply in her own self. Um, and so, you know, at some point then, you know, in the inner healer's own time, not our time as the, the, the support people, Something will come up that's, uh, that, she, that she feels ready to address, and we don't push people. We just let them take their time with it, and usually when it's uh, deep trauma of all kinds, physical, emotional, mental, whatever, it takes more than one session, you know. But one of the most beautiful things that happens is the awakening of uh, what Rudolf Otto called the numinous dimension of the psyche, the spiritual spiritual dimension, where we awaken to the fact that that the psyche is cosmic, and that the universe is a spiritual system, much in the way that all the mystical traditions have described it. It's beautiful to have your own experience of that and to feel it as real as opposed to just reading it in a book. Great. Thank you. I wanted to talk a little bit more, too, about the birth and rebirth. And it sounds like it might be one of the first parts of this process of a session with the perinatal level. And I want to share an experience and see how it relates to how holotropic breath work may work with the birth and rebirth. But one of my healers, she studied under an African shaman in the Jagara tradition. Maladoma Somme was his name. Oh, yes, Are you familiar with him? Yeah. Yes. So um, in that tradition, each year, depending upon the number, um, that year is an element of either earth, fire, water, I think last year was water, but in one of the years it was earth. So we did one of the earth rituals of um, that Maladoma Somme has done in his own, um, you know, culture back there. And the earth ritual was basically a rebirth. So, you know, we went away for the weekend and there were a group of us. And as we're preparing throughout the whole weekend for the ceremony, basically we had to be wrapped up in a cocoon-like, almost to the point where we couldn't really breathe. And then until we got to that point where we felt like we were ready to move out, almost like a little worm, we had somebody holding 
the base of our head and kind of putting pressure to make it a little bit difficult and to give you that sensation of what it would feel like coming out of the birth canal. And then eventually, you know, you would kind of break through that and then you would go to rest and then there would be people there kind of taking care of you. But that was a really powerful experience. Some of it was like scary. Some of it off. I was like, I don't want to birth again. I don't want to, I don't want to come through again. That was really tough. And also kind of, um, you know, it's hard to put into words what happens for each individual person and what exactly heals during those types of ceremonies. But, uh, when I was reading in your book about that, it sounded somewhat similar of kind of coming to terms with that whole process that as we become, you know, older children, teenagers, adults, Rarely, unless you're really put in those situations, you're not really brought back to the birthing process, which is, I don't know, kind of traumatic and beautiful all at the same time. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how when people go back to their birth with the holotrophic breath work and if it's anything similar. Oh, that, that's a great story. Uh, what a teacher you have. And, and, but anyway... Yes, that you know that that sounds like a lovely ritual then to help people get in touch with what we call the perinatal, the birthing experience. I mean, and to actually go through it. And so, yeah, I, mean, I think there are lots of beautiful ways to do it. And and this is one of the most important things that comes up in the breath work. And you you know, Freud was pretty really accurate about the the biographical domain. I mean, you know, he pretty much of what he said was true after birth. But he said that. That we are a tabula rasa, a blank slate at the time of birth, you see. And he, and he talked about all this trauma that happened right after we were born. The truth is, for, but what happens to somebody who's had a 30-hour delivery? You know, that doesn't matter. You know, it's just like mm. it, there's, a, there's a disconnect in the way he taught it. And so the birth experience turns out to be hugely important. And Stan, after working with thousands of people, he came up with a sort of map of the of the, the actual perinatal process that had four stages. The first one was the intrauterine, uh, you know, we call them uh, perinatal matrices, it's a matrix. So the first matrix would be the intrauterine experience, um, where, the, and that can be all, that can be so different. And it, there's a physical component depending on what the mother is, whether she's ill, what she's eating, and so on. There's an emotional component depending on how happy she is, because all of this gets communicated. People have been done the breath work and then gone to their parent, gone to their mother and say, were you thinking this? Were you, were you really depressed during the time of my, when you were carrying me? The mother would break down and say, yes, because that gets communicated to the fetus. So that, it, but it could be lovely as well. You see where you are connected with the mother in this sort of symbiotic, beautiful way and the nutrients through the blood supply and the, the emotional love and so on. And then, then the birth process begins. The, the cervix, uh, contracts, you know, there's, there's, and the, the blood supply is cut off and we are, we are propelled into the birth canal. This is the second stage, the second matrix. And what happens is for, if you've had a great womb, this becomes hell because you have lost connection with the mother and you, and you're stuck in this place. And what we experience is that linear time seems to stop there. And you, you can't go forward. You can't go back. The surface is not open yet, but you're not you're not connected to the mother in the way that you were in the, in the regular intrauterine experience. And so it's like a realm of hell and, and, and linear time stops and feels like it's going to last forever. Um, in, in the archetypal tradition, it corresponds to the archetype of Saturn. The first matrix corresponds to the archetype of Neptune, which is like a watery, 
connection with spirit and so on. Okay, but then the cervix opens. This is stage three. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and, and the depression and compression of the second matrix turns into the power and, uh, of, the, of the third, where just a tremendous power to push through. There's the contractions going on. I mean, it's, you're being pushed through the canal. And, and this is that place where you get to experience that rage. You see that it, it's, it's biological fury. It isn't like, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's actually good. It's an expression. People will be yelling on the mat, you know, expressing this tremendous power as they move through the canal. And then, and then this it usually culminates on the cusp between that and the fourth matrix, which is the actual birth itself. And then you come into the arms of your mother, hopefully, or else it's for many of us, it was a doctor and we were put in an incubator and so on. Depends on whatever it is, and you relive it in that particular way. But now here is the boat. May I say one more thing, please, ma'am, because this is really important with the birth. We are yeah. not, when in the breath work, we, are, we have a wide open consciousness where the perinatal, if we're living that, has two, it, it's that dimension. And then... It, it's, but there's another, it also, it's about the birth, physical, biological birth itself, but there's also the possibility of the experience, not just a physical birth, but a psycho-spiritual death rebirth, which is described by mystical traditions all over the world. And, and so what happens is we are also connected with the transpersonal dimension. So if you, let's say you're having a happy, happy intrauterine experience, connected with the mother, you're reliving this in the birth process, all of a sudden, you can begin to experience yourself as a dolphin swimming in, a, in the ocean, you know, in the South Sea Island, you know, just playfully enjoying yourself. I mean, off the coast of an island, just rolling in the waves and in this heaven state connected with Mother Nature. And that feeling connects with the same feeling that you have about your intrauterine experience. Now, if you are, if your mother's taking LSD or, or not taking LSD, if your mother's taking heroin or something like that, when you're in the womb, it can be hellish because you're receiving poisons into your system. And then in the breath work, when you relive your, your first matrix, you know, your intrauterine experience, when you get to the hell part, you may get the archetypal version of that, which is like an attack by a demonic force or something like that. And all of this is beyond biology. You see, it's the place where you have all the dimensions connect. Our earth dimension, what it's like to live on planet earth, the perinatal, which is the gateway between the two, and then the transpersonal or the archetypal domain that Carl Jung talked about. You see, where it's basically commensurate with all that is. So then, the second matrix, you know, you could you could live your, you know, just live yourself as this old hermit, you know, stuck in this dark place. The third matrix, you could be a great warrior of some sort. Um, and then the mo uh, one of the most powerful is ever recorded for either breath work or psychedelics or even mystical traditions is psycho-spiritual death rebirth where we die to the self that we are now our our feelings our uh, our way of being in the world completely dies and it can feel like we're actually physically dying in this particular place but it is our soul that's going through a change it's our psyche that is being reworked by the power of the, the inner healer and so sometimes when we are born, we're not just born physically, but we get born psycho-spiritually. That's what happened in my first breath work, um, was that I had a mystical birth um, that completely changed my life at that point. And I knew, 
I saw addictions treatment in a completely different way. Everything seemed different, and I recognized that, that these kinds of experiences, that the the tra- the mystical experience, that life is mystical altogether. You know. Yeah, and, intense. And <laughs> I mean, this is like, woof. And the breather can always say stop. You know, we they never have to go through what they don't want to go through. We we never push anybody. I mean, our job is to keep everybody safe, 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 and hold them. Uh, love, 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 you know, and not to control them in any way and ju- no judgment whatsoever. Yeah. And I've never done this breath work before, but I'll tell you with that earth ceremony, um, it, it was almost like having a, a greater appreciation for babies and the work that we do to get out of there. And I could see why they cry and why they sleep forever. It was exhausting. Oh, <laughs> you know, just felt oh. so tired after it. Um, Yeah. And one of the questions that I have is just also from a brain level, I'm curious to know with the type of breath work that's happening, have there been any studies to see what's actually happening within the brain with, you know, if you're breathing and taking deeper, deeper breaths or quicker breaths, I'm assuming that, you know, there may be something that's triggering the oxygen or the flow of oxygen to the cells. And uh, is there anything that they've been able to study to show what's happening with the changes in the brain with this type of breath work? Okay, that is such a great question, and I can't answer it. And, and uh, you know, I am not a scientist or a doctor or a medical or a researcher, but that's one of the things that the clinical research was looking at, you know, the, what was happening with the brain. Um, when the when the pro, when the program in Baltimore, Maryland was shut down uh, in the the middle '60s, you know, and I I I think there is research going on, and we, you could Google it and find it. There is some that backs it up, and but it is still a wide open field now um, for for exploration. But definitely things are happening. You see, there, it, it's just. The only the major difference would be that in, in traditional medicine and traditional science, uh, the earth, I call it, quote unquote, kind of earth based kind of science. You see, if you think that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain, that it is produced there, then you you are looking through a particular lens and it will it will skew and and color all the results that you get. But if you've had the experience that consciousness is use it, you know, is a is the basic fundamental product of, of the universe. The awareness itself is the innate consciousness is a product of the divine. Uh, Satchitananda, existence, consciousness, and bliss is described in the Hindu tradition. And then it uses the brain as sort of like a downstepping focusing. You know, it'd be like a, the old TV sets where you have signals running through the air. The TV, the, the show is not inside the TV box. You know, the show is a, is a, is a light wave. You know, the show is an impulse and it, and it is picked up by the TV. And this is our understanding of the way the brain works. But you know what? It, 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 this is an, a wide open field now um, that needs to be explored. And the good news is that, that um, already some good friends of ours that are certified in the breath work are working with uh, people with post-traumatic stress from war. Uh, and be, and got their the first program with uh, MDMA, another sort of psychedelic substance, to work with uh, veterans of the war, and has had great results. So now it's legal to do psychedelic research once again, and this is so beautiful, you know, that this can happen. Um, and uh, the people that are doing the psychedelic work now, 
most of them have been certified in Old Soviet breathwork, so there's this wonderful synergy between the two fields. I mean, they cover the same territory. One is just mainly with the breath and the other through the psychedelic substance. Wow, cool. Um, <clears throat> another question that I had, too, was when we talk about these sessions, uh, I'm assuming that a, a person would come for this breathwork session and it would probably continue over maybe a course of a couple of different sessions that they would have, or is one session just really enough to have a very big breakthrough and awareness and rebirth of what people are looking for? It's a great question. And I would say both and. For example, my first breathwork was a, a fait accompli. I mean, it was a done deal. It was a, a mystical experience, an encounter with the divine like I had uh, in about seven of my psychedelic experiences. It was absolutely gorgeous. The message I got was, now you have a path of non-drug to get there. And it was a complete in and of itself. But at the same time, it was an open invitation to continue my own deep work. Now, the second session I had was like, took me to a deep, uh, a really difficult part of my birth process. And then I went like, oh, hell, well, it was, it was good for me to recognize that I was not going just to take, do the breath work just to get high, you know. And so sometimes people, uh, they complete everything in one session. And it's like a glorious finish. And some people go, that was all I ever needed. I don't even need to come back to breath work. And others go, this is great. I'm going to continue. But I feel really complete. And so the me the metaphor that we use is, and then there are a lot of people who just touch something like abuse that is impossible to heal in one session. You know, if we've been emotionally, physically, sexually abused or whatever, that is a serious trauma, as every therapist knows. And you just can't. Most people, I've never known anybody to heal it in one session. So we have to spend our time as the facilitators to help people arrive at what we call a completion within the larger field of incompletion. You see, you have people can't just walk out of the breathwork room all tore apart, torn apart, uh, in a miserable place. We work with them emotionally, physically, mentally. You see, during the sharing sessions and have follow up so that. Because people can go home going, wow, I uncovered something that's really powerful, uh, but it's definitely not finished. You see, so we would, you know, we would, we often refer people back to their own particular therapist, you know, like, look, go back, connect with your support people, go back and connect with AA, with Narcotics Anonymous, whatever it is. Don't isolate yourself and call us. And we call them, we connect up through, uh, you know, the Internet or whatever, just to stay in touch with people. But we would never let anybody leave a workshop that's just uh, deep in the process and in pain. We just won't do it. I mean, we cannot let anybody leave and stay. We will stay with them. I have held people for one of the great one of the great releases in breathwork is like um, uh you release something powerful, like an orgiastic release. and But the other powerful thing that happens is holding. We will hold people. My southern expression is till the cows come home, you know, forever. <laughs> we hold them until, you know, as long as they need to be held. That human contact, we don't control them. We just, usually it's a woman with a woman, you know, or whatever she feels comfortable with, she can say. And in this work, whatever, whatever, whatever work that we are doing with them, uh, is we inquire if they want it, and they can always say stop, and we never impose anything from the outside. But holding is tremendously healing for people who have a process that's going to last a long time, you know. 
Yeah, great. And let's say that there's people listening to this and maybe they might be on medications prescribed by their psychiatrist for depression, anxiety, OCD, um, you know, PTSD, whatever the case may be. Can people taking psychotropic med- um, medications come and do a process like this while on that medication? And I'm asking because I'm just curious, like if we're tapping into a deeper spiritual level of consciousness, does does the medication affect the experience for the person to be able to access? You know, if there are, or let's even say somebody, you know, is taking an opiate blocker like Suboxone or something. Um, You know, I'm just curious to know how does that type of medication play into breath work like this? Would they need to come off of it before they try something like this, or is it okay for them to stay on it? Okay, it depends on the medication. It's a really great question. You know, some, some is so... Uh, uh, symptom suppressing that it, it, it would be count, counterproductive then to have a, to be doing a method that helps people open, you see, at the same time that they're, that they're taking something that is suppressing uh, the process. You know, uh, antidepressants, mm, people come and do the breathing there, and oftentimes they, they end up not needing the antidepressants anymore, uh, but they can have an experience with that. The, you know, Okay, the, the main question is to have a, have a session, a, a verbal session with them uh, ahead of time because you, you want to know what was the reason that they got the medication to start with. I mean, it is true that many, many people are probably over-prescribed, that, that uh, the breath work would work so beautifully, they go in there depressed. Well, hell, every, <laughs> we get depressed, you know what I mean? But to take an antidepressant, it just, you, it's... You, you sort of shut down the ability to heal. You know, a lot of the medication just suppresses the symptoms but doesn't really get rid of them. But, but at the same time, there are some people, you see, the breath work usually lasts uh, like a weekend or a one-day session. You know, we have longer for the training. You go for a week or two weeks. But we would never want to have somebody do the breath work to come off their medication. You see, and all of a sudden they have this tremendous upsurge of whatever the symptoms were. And then they're not finished by the end of the day. They're in this wide open place, you know. And so hopefully one day soon we're going to have spiritual emergency centers where people can go stay in that place around the clock and be supported for a few days, you see. But so for some of the medication, it's needed, you see. Um, the, the, The antipsychotic kind of things are really heavy stuff like that. Either a person has been misdiagnosed or a doctor has diagnosed him with uh, as as being schizophrenic or or whatever you see, and giving them one of the types of drugs for that, and then you you just cannot work with somebody in a one day session or so on. Um, but we we have a medical form that we send out for everybody. Uh, we when there are certain things we say, okay, go tell your doctor that this is what the session is going to be like, and just see what your doctor says. Do you see? Can you can you do this? Uh, are you able to do this work? We want to work in, you know, in conjunction with also whatever their medical doctors are saying. Um, and so it's a gray area, you know, high blood pressure medicine, you know, we just tell people to take it really, really easy, you know, uh, so the antidepressants, the sessions not usually aren't super, super powerful. They, but at the same time, it's not, um, it's not, it's not a contraindication, but some of the others, Yes, it would depend on the, you see, it depends on what that person, we don't know a person until we meet them and spend time with them. And then we go, 
oh, this person would be, it would be beautiful if he or she could, could gradually come off this medication. This work is something that would help this person. Or, you know, there, or we, we ascertain this person is taking the medication because they, they would not be able to respond in a one-day, it wouldn't be ethical for us to give him a one-day breath work and then to send him home all um, in turmoil. You see that they don't have the capacity then to take care of that. But this begs the the thought, we all are praying for one day soon to be able to have what we call spiritual emergency centers. The question is whether someone is psychotic or whether they are in a spiritual emergency. You see, Christina Groff had that problem. She was diagnosed as, as psychotic, but basically she was just in a spiritual crisis. And a lot of times the symptoms look similar, you know. And uh, so she went through the whole thing with Stan supporting her and healed. And uh, so we talk a lot about spiritual emergency becoming spiritual emergence. Does this make sense? Like an awakening. Um, But again, you know, we don't we we never act like the Wild West. Like, oh, yeah, breathwork's going to heal everybody. You know, we're really very careful and we do lots of follow up with people uh, and uh, often get in touch with the doctors ourselves. Great. And this might be a good time to let people know where, if they were interested in actually becoming trained in this or for a session, do they need to come directly to where you guys do the training or are there other trained um, people that are doing this work and maybe they could find somebody locally? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. It's a great question. Yeah, there we're, we do. Okay, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of people worldwide, probably over several thousand people worldwide doing whole topic breath work right now that are not working in the training itself, but are just giving that we have sanctioned them to do the breath work. They have come through the training. Okay, so in the U.S., for example, we do the training in uh, usually two locations, Southern California, Joshua Tree, very, very beautiful place, and then in New England. So that's where the training modules take place, the six-day ones. Um, but now if, if a person wants to experience holotropic breath work just uh, without the training first is to see if she likes it, she can just get in touch with Carrie at the Groff Transpersonal Training Office. Just go online, Groff Transpersonal Training. Um, Carrie can give her a list. That's my wife. She is the heart and soul and brain of, of the whole world thing. None of us would exist without Carrie. Um, and then she would say, here's a list of facilitators that we really love in your area. And here's their, here's their contact, their emails or whatever. So that person then in that area would call, would email or whatever, connect up with a, one of the facilitators there and see if they feel simpatico, if it feels right. And maybe that person is doing a one-day workshop and then they would go. And at that point, somebody says, oh, I love this work. I want to become certified. And then they have to have a certain number of breath works before that. They get back in touch with Carrie and she gives them the requirements of what you need to do before you begin the training itself. But then the training would take, they have, they, they take place over a period of a couple of years, minimal in six day modules. And these are in the two places as I said, uh, with different kinds of teachers. We have all, we have guest lecturers and we have certain required things they need to learn. And then we have beautiful uh, alternative modules that, that we do. And then they can go worldwide. I mean, their training is now in uh, South America, Australia, and all over Europe, and uh, Russia, and so on. And in China, we're going to begin. Uh, it's in India. We've really kind of gotten all over the place, you know. 
Great. Well, and we just kind of barely touched upon a lot of stuff that is within your book, The Power Within. Um, Usually when I get books, you know, for podcasts and stuff like that, I can breeze through them. But this is a book that I want to take my time with. (laughs) You know, I had about two weeks to begin to read it, but a lot of this stuff, it's just heavy. You know, you want to sit with it and digest it a little bit. So this isn't a book necessarily that I would breeze through because there's a lot of self-reflection that you can do as you're reading The Power Within. And this isn't the first book that you wrote, so maybe you could also let our listeners know just the other things that you're involved in, the other books that you wrote, in case they would like to get more information about the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, and thank you for your time as well. But yeah, you're exactly right. Um, you know, in the beginning, let me just, let me just, I have to kind of say this. Okay. The first part of the book is really technical too, because it describes the history of breath work and the, the scientific perspective and the psycho, psychiatric perspective. I do that just to let people know that I've got my chops down. You know what I'm saying? That I'm not just right. a fly by night that I understand what the heck I'm talking about. And then I, and then I try to, vo- then I try to voice what facilitators are doing. I'll, you know, I become, hopefully become the voice of the facilitator people that, the, the hundreds of us that are working, this is how we feel, you know. So that's why that's why the whole first part is kind of technical. And then after that, it's just about, you know, the heart of it. Um, so, now, what was the second part of the question? Okay, I, I forgot. Oh, yeah. Nope, no, yeah, no problem. Just the other yeah. books that you wrote and, you yeah, know, just in case if people are interested to know about some other projects that you've worked on. Yeah, thank you. The, well, I wrote, a, I wrote a training manual. That's not, that didn't count. I wrote a book called The Wide Open Door... Uh, with a subtitle. This was a book about uh, a transpersonal or a holotropic approach to addictions recovery. That was the first book that I wrote. Um, What's it called? The, the Wide Open Door, something, I can't remember, something in the new, and this, and I can't remember, but it's called The Wide Open Door. And uh, right now, there's study groups, people using that book, you know, and it has helped very much a certain level of addictions treatment as far as I've people are telling me. You see, it gives us a, uh, a sort of holotropic approach to uh, addictions recovery. And the second one is a fun book. It's called Movie Yoga, How Every Film Can Change Your Life. And the idea would be, we have this beautiful holotropic process that lasts three days or one day on the mat, two days together on a mat, and you go through this whole day thing with the breath work, and it's really, really beautiful. But what are the applications of the holotropic perspective outside of doing breath work. What if you just don't have time for doing this, you know, doing the deep breathing and going to the breath workshops? Are, are there ways that the holotropic perspective can become a moment-to-moment, day-to-day practice? And so what we have discovered is it is absolutely true. In fact, I talk about this in the new book. But in movie yoga, for example, the idea would be you, you change movie watching from a, just a pastime of fun into an actual therapeutic endeavor. And then here's how it works, it's really, really simple. You're watching a film and you see a scene and you have a reaction, a very powerful reaction, either great joy, uh, great love, great open-hearted, or like you get frightened or whatever. Okay, and then we do a process called, we, the, the idea would be, did the film made me feel this way? Or, or, or did the film be a trigger, you see, for something to emerge from within our psyche. And because you were sitting with your partner watching a movie and she's not moved in the same way. She loved the scene that you got scared at, you see. So it's obviously 
uh, we're all different, and this is based upon our past history primarily. And so we do a form of self-inquiry if you want, and it becomes a game. We call it the movie yoga game. Afterwards, you, after the movie, you go have a cup of tea, and you sit down and you go, um, you ask yourself the question, is this feeling that I felt familiar? Have I ever felt it before, this fear or this joy or this sexual arousal or whatever it is? And as you're sitting there, you can just scan back your life and go, oh, my God, yeah, I know this feeling really, really well. And already we're sitting there at that point with a cup of tea doing therapy with ourselves. You see, we've examined how our reaction in the movie was the same thing that we have felt before in our life. And that shows us that this is a pattern that we have. And then we are open to all the, and, and right there, that is often enough to heal people because consciousness itself is the healer. We heal by bringing that which is unconscious into our awareness, into our consciousness. And that right there is the healing power. But sometimes we uncover something and go, whoa, I can't do this by myself. I need to go to a therapist. And then you, you do that your fingers do the walking through the yellow page of therapist and to your heart goes, bingo, this is the one I want to go to. So right there, this is a moment to moment. This is a movie process based on the holotropic breath work. And so, you know, in the new book, I, I the ultimate question is, could we live a life practice every moment where life becomes an opportunity to heal? You see that the, all of life is that, not not something to abuse us or something to grab something from but a way to transform ourselves, to truly find ourselves. And that way, every experience that we have is what we call, Ram, the spiritual teacher Ram Dass said, grist for the mill of awakening. You see, every single thing that we go through, light or dark, painful or pleasure, can be a moment for healing. If we would just focus for a second, we call it going vertical. The horizontal world is that everything that's outside us, you know. And we get triggered, but we always used to blame the outside world for everything. You made me feel this way. This is why. But the bottom line is we get triggered in the outside world. And then we can turn vertical, go inside ourselves and go, ah, that's the way my mama used to treat me. Or this is what happened when I was in kindergarten or my birth was like that. Does this make sense? Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, it's it really has been such a pleasure of speaking with you and hearing about the books and all the great stuff that you're doing. And we will put a lot of information in the show notes for people to be able to um, take a look at the lectures and the workshops and the trainings that you guys are holding. So thank you so much for being a guest on our show. April, thank you so much for uh, taking for uh, being willing to do this. I know that I'm a uh, run my mouth a whole lot, but thank you for letting me just blab. And you have an amazing presence, and I wish you all the best blessings and all the work that you you guys are doing. I've looked at it online; it's amazing work you're doing, and thank you for it. Oh, thank you, and you're you're one of the best guests to have because you make my job easy. I only have to ask a couple of questions, and I let you run with it. So <laughs> it's great. This was an, an easy interview for me. So thank you so much. You all the best. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.